Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So 1 Kings chapter 8 is where we'll pick up tonight. Um, This is a big chapter because it's essentially the end of Act 1. So when it comes to the story of Israel, the the founding of the temple is just everything's come up to this conclusion. So you get the end of one era of God's promises, and Solomon's prayer initiates a whole new era for Israel's history. They're shifting the covenantal relationship moving from tabernacle to temple, from a nomadic people to a stationary people that have found their rest in their home. So it's great stuff. We also get a huge lesson in how to pray tonight and what prayer should look like. Solomon just gives a great example. First, the ark gets brought to the temple, verse 1. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month, perfect month. And so the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. And they notice that the priests take up the ark under Solomon. Like they didn't do it all willy-nilly like David, so nobody's getting killed because they're doing it the right way. Solomon's read the word and he's doing it like the word says. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up, also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him. They were with them before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. When we see a book in the Old Testament, when things get numbered very carefully, when it has a phrase like cannot be counted, that's a sizable amount because they're pretty good at counting we've seen so far in the Old Testament. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And and they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So we see Solomon following God's command and everything goes smoothly. This is the golden mark of Israel's history. They use the poles from verse 8, like no priest touches the ark with their hands. Um, I think that's really because God didn't want the smudges. Have you ever seen people that like touch your computer screen and they just leave little smudges? Like God just wanted the ark to, that's why there's poles. Don't touch the, just leave it be and nobody has to clean it. So all the furnishings, that would be the ark, the lampstand, the table, and the incense altar, which haven't been mentioned yet. That's because they were already built. They're already part of the tabernacle. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets. That's odd. Last time we saw the ark, it had the two tablets, but it also had the jar of manna, the manna pot, and then it had the Aaron's rod that was in there. 
So something has, between last we saw the ark and now, those things have either been removed for the ark or they're just not being mentioned right now. That said, to not be mentioned isn't a contradiction. And the other thing is the Aaron's rod and the manna, maybe they just decomposed. It's been 500 years. So it's been enough time for things like that to just turn into dust. So the Lord made a covenant. It's now fulfilled. This covenant was made 500 years ago. Nobody alive at the dedication of the temple was there. I mean, we're talking about multiple generations that have come and gone, which says something about God's promises. God's promises don't necessarily constrain themselves to our lifetime. And a lot of times we kind of reduce God to somebody who just answers our prayers within our timing. And sometimes God's answers to prayers even come after our lifetime is over. So this covenant, these promises are made a long time from there. So they do it God's way. Then they get this miracle. They've done everything as God told them to do it. And then they see amazing things happen. It's amazing when you just follow God in the simple things. And then you do that obedient act, how these miracles start to happen. Like you pray simply for something and God just responds to it. So in verse 10, that's, and it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud, notice the word the is there. It's got a, it's got a uh, participle in front of it. Notice that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering. It, it actually, the word because there, it's not because, it's panim, which means in the face of. Or up in the grill, it's like when the dog comes up and likes to say hello to you two inches away. The word there is in the face of. So the priest could not continue ministering in the face of the cloud, in that close presence to it. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon spoke, the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud, and I have surely built you an exalted house and a place where you can dwell forever. He's skipping the part that the Lord said he would dwell with them as long as they were obedient to him. So the Lord doesn't stay in that temple. By the time Jesus shows up, that arguably that glory is gone. Um, and God sends this cloud to tell them that they're doing everything the right way. When you're doing everything the right way, God's presence shows up. And that's awesome. Like you get one taste of that and you're like the power of God just moving. And all you do is you wake up the next day going, I want more of that. How can I continue to follow in the steps of the Lord? So verse 10 says the cloud, Anon, is a cloud mass or a fog. And then in verse 11, it says the cloud. That's Yakol, a totally different Hebrew word. And that word means a might or a power. So in the face of God's overcoming power, they couldn't continue to minister. And minister there is to just kind of tend to things, to serve, to take care of things, the way we use the word ministry. So if the Lord is in the cloud, Exodus 13, 21, they just had to get that distance. And in the Old Covenant, that distance is really important because the Old Covenant doesn't get them into the presence of God. So they do things obediently. As soon as they leave, verse 10, when they come out of the holy place, they can feel the power of God reside in that place. And their initial instinct is we have to get away. Not that they were abjectly doing anything wrong, but simply that the power of God became a force in verse 11 that pushes them back. God's word just comes and resides. It's really an interesting kind of thing that gets recorded here, but this isn't the only place. Um, That presence of God showed up first in Exodus 3-2 where he caused to dwell is in a burning bush. And, and we see that presence is there on Mount Sinai, Exodus 33, 1-1, burns the top of the mountain, just raw power. 
So Israel's had a cloud of fire by day, and a, or a cloud of smoke by day and fire by night that has led them around, but it's been in front of them or it comes to a stop before them. They've never gotten that close to it. Because inside that presence is some sort of manifest presence of God. God's everywhere all the time, all, all over the place. We see that theologically, but God exhibits power in a certain place and time to guide his people and show them where to move and how to move. So that presence of God, we see it throughout the Old Testament, and that's why they say the cloud in verse 10. It's the cloud that has been with them all the way along. And now that they've got this place where they're there, it's kind of there. We in the modern church call this the Shekinah glory. Oddly enough, the word Shekinah is nowhere in the Bible. It's just like the word Trinity. You can't find it in the Bible, but it's a concept or a word that we use to attach to this thing we see in the Bible. So we use the word Trinity to explain that God is both God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and it's one being. And we use the word Trinity to explain that. The word Shekinah, it wasn't Christians that came up with that, it was Jewish people. And they used the word Shekinah outside of biblical text to explain the cloud. It's this thing that's not a real, like, cloud cloud. It's not actual fog, but it's visibly like a fog. And verse 11 talks about this cloud being kind of a power or a presence. So it's not just like driving through pea soup fog. It's that there's something about this fog that has a presence or a power to it that we can't explain. And the Jewish people just use the term Shekinah. It's the Shekinah glory. It's the presence you just can't exist in front of as a lowly human being. So it's interesting when that cloud or presence is with them, it's a way for God to say they're on track, and it's used to explain this recurring image of God's presence. That too and before Jesus is incarnate, some theologians believe that Jesus was actually in the cloud, that the incarnate form of God was in there, and there was actually an incarnate God that sat or resided with God's people. So that's just theologically how people have done that. But because the cloud was there, it was because God wasn't ready to reveal Jesus yet. So visibly, you couldn't see what was inside the cloud. Um, again, it depends on how much you want to read into some of those histories. It says the glory of the Lord. That's what the Bible actually says. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God can't be reduced to a building, but he can still fill a building. It's why when we pray sometimes before we do Bible study, Lord, just fill the space. May your Holy Spirit just reside on what we're doing. Be with us so that we feel your power moving in our hearts. And it's not an overwhelming thing in the new covenant, but it is something that we can feel and we notice that we're changing a little bit. So his glory abides in the house, but it isn't necessarily the only place that he's at. The same exact thing happens in Acts chapter 2. It's interesting. At the beginning of the temple era, the Shekinah glory just comes and fills the place and everybody who's there is like, God is with this covenant and he's like confirming it. Acts chapter two, the disciples wait upon Jesus. They're taught with them. Then they go out and they start sharing the good news and all of a sudden the power of God just shows up. That light just gets brighter in dark places. And it just, the, all the disciples are like, man, it was like there was a fire over people's heads. And what they're talking about is something that maybe is visual but they're trying to describe a Shekinah glory. There's this presence of God that you feel when you're doing God's work. It's kind of a cool thing. So God's presence then is necessary for any kind of worship to take place. If God's presence isn't in that worship, then who are you worshiping? And what's that all about? So the Shekinah glory is going to stay in this temple as an, an abiding presence of God until the time of Ezekiel. 
So they're going to get years, generations where you come to the temple and there's just a presence that you feel as you approach the temple. And the closer you get, the more present that, that Shekinah glory is. The sense here is that it's overwhelming, where with the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, it's not overwhelming, it's peace-giving. It's this sense of like, I don't have to do everything. I have the power of God with me. Right? But because God blo God's blood covers our sin and eliminates our sin, Hebrews chapter 10, we don't have to worry or be fearful in that presence. We don't melt in that presence anymore. Where Moses was like defying all odds to get even close to it, right? And his face started to glow like radioactive Moses man. So the axis of God here is flawed. It's imperfect. The priests have to back off. The new covenant with Jesus, you don't have to back off. We can boldly enter the presence of God. Amazing shift in the theology of what's going on. So Jesus becomes a perfect sacrifice that allows unfettered access, but at the beginning of the temple era, they got all these animals beyond count that get sacrificed and whatever because multiple priests have to haul the ark into the thing. So they do one of the largest sacrifices they're going to do up until Hezekiah's era just to get the ark into the Holy of Holies, right? So there's a sacrifice, there's unfettered access, for just this short window of time to get the ark in place. And as soon as they get out, the, the power of God kind of pushes them further away. And the opposite happens with Jesus. The power of God draws us close into the Holy of Holies. But this is meant to be an image of this temporary setup. So then Solomon gives a speech, like any good politician. You got everybody gathered in a room. It's time for the politician to get up and give a speech. And he gives this speech, verse 14. Then the king turned around, because initially he's facing the Holy of Holies. But he turns around to the assembly of people out in the courtyard, and he blesses the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David. With his hand he's fulfilled it. I love how Solomon doesn't take credit for something. Like, God spoke to my dad, and we just finished what, we, what was started a generation before, and we're just keeping that tradition going. Um, so even Solomon at this point in his life, there's some great humility there. Solomon brings up Exodus. Um, and this is kind of neat, the Lord God of Israel. And then he's about to bring up Exodus, which is a rooting story for the Israelite people. 500 years ago, God brought us out of slavery. We were just a group of slaves. We didn't have a country. We didn't have a place. We didn't have a city. We didn't have a name. He picked Abraham out of the entire planet, this nomadic family. And then of Abraham, he picked Jacob, a branch from which he would make his people. Then you get the 12 tribes, and then he uses Moses to bring those people and turn them into a nation. And then he uses Joshua to take that nation and give it its own land. And then with that land, he uses Saul and David to kind of lock down the security of that land. And then he uses Solomon to create trade networks to build a temple in the middle of that land. All of it's been God's work doing each little piece in a different generation so no one generation can take credit for Israel. So when he says the Lord God of Israel has done this, he's being really literal about what he's saying there. We didn't do this. We didn't do all of it. So now the nation has a capital. It's got a center. He told David exactly where to build the temple, like by this threshing floor so you can put the temple on this spot, and he puts it right in the middle. So And with his hand he has fulfilled it, saying, and then verse 16, since the day that I brought my people, land, uh, people Israel out of Egypt, I've chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. 
Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. I like how he says that. It's not a temple for the Lord. It's a temple for the name of the Lord. We can only have a place where the name is represented. But they know full well that God's much bigger than a building. Verse 18, but the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that that was what was in your heart. He shall build a temple for my name. David wanted to build a temple, but God said no. David accepted the no. If only little kids could just know what the word no means. So the Lord had fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I've built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel, and there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Remember what sits inside the ark is the law. Like that's the covenant he gave Moses. Here's the law that says what right and wrong is. You don't get to make up what right and wrong is. I'm going to define that for you. And then that sits inside of a golden box that has a mercy seat on top of it called the, the, the cover of the mercy seat is the lid of the ark. That ark then gets covered with the blood of sacrifices to make from God's perspective, he doesn't really see that law inside because the blood covers it. So we get these images of blood covering what we know we've done wrong because we've broken the law. Prophecy fulfilled, God does it. Solomon makes it super clear to the people, this has all been predicted ahead of time. And God's done everything he said he was going to do. And then he does this prayer of dedication. It's repeated in 2 Chronicles 6, if you want to look at that as we go back and forth. Verse 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven. Just a quick point here. Note that he's standing before. The altar is actually outside the temple. So he's not inside the temple. He doesn't claim that spot. And notice that he's standing because when we get to the end of the prayer, he gets up because he's kneeling. Somewhere during the prayer, Solomon drops to his knees. But we don't know where that happens. You can take your guess as we're going through it. Um, but he's standing before the Lord in the presence of the assembly, spreads out his hands towards heaven. You ever notice that when Christians pray, we bow our heads and we fold our hands? In the Old Testament, the form of prayer, remember Moses praying over the battle with the Am Amalekites? He lifts his hands to pray for the armies of Israel, and he has to have people hold his arms up. I think that that difference in posture is a really interesting thing. And again, think about that just a little bit. Why in the Old Testament did they raise their hands towards God? And yet, somehow or another, as believers, we fold our hands before God. It's kind of a different posture. And there's two different covenants, so maybe there's a reason for that shift. So he's outside in the temple. He's standing up. He raises his hands. Um, and then he... Huh. When we go through this prayer, just another little note, and I'm not going to go through every one. I would say 80, 85% of the words of this prayer you can find elsewhere in the Old Testament. Like, literally, this guy's just citing the word of God back to God. It's clear from this prayer that Solomon has studied the Old Testament, at least the Torah, and he's studied it carefully, and he's memorized huge parts of it. Because when, what comes out of his mouth is simply God's word. So when we look at prayer and how we pray, this is a real encouragement for you. When you pray, do you, have, do you find that God's Bible verses are coming out of your mouth when you pray? And when you learn to think like God, those things kind of just come out and you start to think like God because you've read what God says. So here it is. And he says, verse 23, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. 
You who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And he's alluding to Deuteronomy 6.5. I won't do every one of these, but he's, he's making mention of the, the Shema there. God, Solomon sets God apart. That's how he starts his prayer. This is one of the things for me in my prayer. I'm trying to do more of this when I pray, that when I start my prayer, I simply acknowledge in truth who God is. And I think that sets up the prayer with the right relationship, right? You are God of heaven and earth. You get all glory. You are mighty and above all the nations. You're in total control of everything. Think what that does to my anxiety, just starting out with truth, the truth of God's position versus my position. And Solomon starts by acknowledging who God is, that he's separate, that he's different. And every covenant then that just happens, there's an order to this. He's mentioning the covenant that he, your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, your covenant and mercy with the servants who are doing this. Every covenant starts with a sacrifice. And all these sacrifices they just got done giving were things they gave over to God and said, here you go. It's interesting in the Old Testament, the sacrifice comes first, but it does in the New Testament too. The sacrifice of Jesus came before we have interactions with God. And so the ordering kind of stays in that place and they can move forward in that. But there's an order to this walking before God. One is you have to be in covenant with God. So verse 24, you've kept what you promised your servant David with my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you've walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true which you've spoken to your servant David, my father. Is this a selfish prayer? Solomon says you're a separate and unique God, and God, you promised that if we followed your will that you'd keep us on the throne, so Lord, please keep me on the throne. I think sometimes God, when he makes promises, it's okay to remind him of those promises. And and the same thing with us, we can say, you promised that you love the world so much that you gave your only sons that we might have eternal life. Lord, give me eternal life. And yes, that's absolutely a selfish prayer, but what a beautiful prayer. It's selfish when you do it outside of God's will, but when you're inside of God's will, it's simply acknowledging truth and asking for the things you've got. Lord, you promised the fruits of the Spirit. I want the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, you promised you'd give me the words to say when I'm talking to non-believers. Give me the words to say when I'm talking to non-believers. Lord, you promised me peace in the middle of a storm. While I'm in a storm, Lord, I'm looking for your peace. When you ask for the things God promises you, it's like he's waiting for you to ask him. And that peace can just come like that in the middle of anything. He can just bring it. He's promised he would give it to you, but for some reason God loves when when we acknowledge what he's said and we actually ask him for it. It says, your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand. Uh, Solomon's using personification there. I don't want to get people confused theologically. God doesn't actually have a mouth and a hand. But he's using that personified, and it's contingent on what Solomon's saying. So he's saying, God, keep me on the throne as long as I'm obedient. God put the same contingency on the promise he gave to David. So sometimes we ask for God for things, and we forget the condition of those things he's promised. Solomon accurately asked for those things, but he he notes the condition of it too. So this is a danger when you just ask for God's blessings, but then you're not willing to do what God's asked you on the other side of that to be faithful in these little things he's asked you to do. 
So just a, a thought. It says, let your word come true. God's word and promises really align us to God. And again, this is Solomon giving a public prayer. So sometimes we ask about prayer. Should it be private? Should it be public? One of the things about public prayer is that Solomon's expressing faith in God's word and in praying it out loud, he's reminding everybody in the room of that too. God, you promised that when we gathered that you would be present with us. Keep your promise. You promised you'd be amongst your saints. You promised that the body of Christ is made up of your believers. Well, here we are, Lord. Show up and be with us. Guide what Dickers is saying because we know he puts his foot in his mouth half the time when you're not with him. So help him get through this one and not screw stuff up. So Solomon knows God's word. He asks for the promises of God's word. And then he, keep, he lays hold of them by accurately presenting those promises. This is wisdom. Remember, the whole premise of the beginning of Kings was Solomon was given wisdom. So if we want to be wise in our prayer, we distinguish God, verse 23. We're thankful for what he's done in the past, verse 24. Verse 25, we repeat God's word back to him. And verse 26, we give our petition and our request. Nice order of events for prayer, right? And you get this kind of structure for, okay, how do we pray and how do we do that? Frankly, when the, Jesus gives the Lord's prayer to the disciples, it follows the same pattern as Solomon's prayer. It does all the same things. Verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, but how much less this temple which I've built. This is an amazing admission. In the ancient world, you built the temple because they actually believed that the God lived in the building. The temple of Zeus, the temple of Athena, the temple of Ashtaroth and, and Magog, they actually embodied the statues that the humans would build, as was the belief. So when he's saying you're a God that can't be contained by a building, this is something that they should have remembered when you get to Jesus' time. They started swearing by the temple building instead of swearing by the God that had his name as, abide there. So they started to worship the building instead of worshiping the God. And this is something Jesus got pretty upset about, right? They started to disregard the things God said and started to create rules that weren't there in the first place. It's important to note verse 27 because this is the foundation of the temple era. Solomon had every awareness that God didn't live in a building. And it's admitted right there. We know that you are bigger than this building. Then verse 28, yet... Regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. Lord, listen to me. Please hear me. How humble to think that God, maybe God doesn't have to hear you. Is God obliged to hear everything you say? No. So maybe it's actually kind of humble and good to say, Lord, please hear my prayer. Verse 29, that your eyes may be open towards this temple night and day, towards the place which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place, and may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place when you hear, forgive. Lord, when people pray and they know your name is in this building and they're praying to you, please hear their prayers so that all around the world people know who God is. What a great prayer. Lord, may your name be glorified on earth as it is in heaven, right? Same way we're supposed to be kind of praying. So if they're obedient in this, they can do it. Now, I should say that this, this creates, these verses 
where there's already personification happening, the, the, there were entire sects of Jews to, to this day will figure out which direction faces them to Jerusalem. And they take the word toward literally, and they actually face Jerusalem when they play, kind of like Muslims facing Mecca. So Jerusalem, they take these verses super literally, and they're like, okay, I have to be facing Jerusalem for God to hear my prayers, which I think is taking these a, li a bit too far. I think the spirit of what Solomon's saying here is, when people pray to the name of the Lord God Almighty, please hear their prayer. And if this is where your name resides, then may you hear their prayer when they pray to the, the name that's in this building. Verse 31. I, I think there'd be a lot of confusion. When the Romans then destroyed the temple, which way did they face? So then they got a problem, right? There's no building there anymore. So you got Jewish people all over the world all confused when they pray. But they, I think they still face Jerusalem, right? That tradition. Anyways, verse 31. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar at this temple, then hear in heaven and act your judge you and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteousness by giving him according to his righteousness. The temple then has a role in the arbitration of the law. When we go into a courtroom, at least traditionally in the United States of America, before you give an oath or before you give your word, you put your hand on a Bible and you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Comes right back to this tradition that Solomon's praying right here. When you make that oath or when you're forced to take an oath, the idea is you're in a kind of a court situation or a legal situation. If you lost the judgment, then you were bound by an oath. So they didn't have probation officers checking in on you. You would leave the courtroom and they would say, Sherry, you broke the law. Here's the judgment. You need to pay Mandy X number of dollars to make up for the situation. And then they would have to trust that Sherry would go do it. So the, word, the phrase there, forced to take an oath, assuming Sherry did something bad, I'm using you because I just can't imagine what that would be, then Sherry would take an oath by God that she would fulfill that agreement that was made before the temple situation. So when it says forced to take an oath, that's what they're referring to there. It's similar to swearing on a Bible, but if she didn't keep that oath, then the prayer is that God would take care of it. Like bad things would happen to her in accordance to what she broke the oath on. And if she followed through on it, God would accordingly bless her in the same way. Condemning the wicked is an idea that we struggle with, I think, especially in American modern Christianity. The idea that it's okay to wish bad people get bad things, right? And, and sometimes that's tough because we think, how does, how does this evil continue? Why doesn't anything happen? When these bad things happen and these nasty people are mugging these little old ladies or carjacking people. And one of the prayers of Solomon is, "May God, may you take care of the wicked people. We don't want these people abusing and taking advantage of people. Lord, bring justice to these people and help that to happen. So in any just society, we're not going to see everything bad that happens. There's going to be bad people that get away with it in earthly terms. And Solomon, I think, wisely prays that the justice system isn't going to catch everything. Lord, we need you to help us catch things. So I think when you're a, a kid growing up in a Christian home and you've got these parents and grandparents praying for you, you can't get away with anything, right? And it's almost horrible. It's like the first time you did this and then you get caught and you think, how did I get caught doing this thing? And, and the answer is because God's helping to bring justice in that home. You're getting prayed for by a grandma. Good luck getting away with anything. It's not going to happen. 
you're going to get caught for everything you do. I was good. I went two, three years keeping the speed limit, broke it once, and boom, there's the cop. Because justice is a good thing in a society. And if God's looking out for us, we get caught when we do bad things. It's better for us to not do those things anymore. So we pray we get caught. The phrase, his way is on his head, is that it's not God bringing the bad things. It's a natural consequence. There's a lot of sins that we can do where there's just a natural consequence to it. May those consequences come to fruition. You get caught doing X, Y, and Z and you hurt. You're not just sinning against the other people around you. You're sinning against God himself. So we want those consequences to show up. On the flip side, Solomon prays for the justification of the righteous. You know, there's that prayer that we see, and we'll see this more in the prophets and the poetic books. Why is it that good people have bad things happen to them? Why is it the bad thing people keep thriving? How does that happen? Ecclesiastes had that question in it. Solomon's prayer is that God would protect the just and the good people. May the good people be treated goodly in the world, or may they be justified in righteousness. That's a prayer that Solomon in his wisdom knows that that doesn't happen. Now he goes on to pray for future calamities. Realistically, Solomon knows bad things can happen. So we're going to pray for war, we're going to pray against famine, and we're going to pray against pestilence. Now this is kind of a weird thing, but it occurred to me, wow, I can't remember the last time I've been with a group of people and we prayed against pestilence. Yet there's grasshoppers breeding in my backyard. Right? And so maybe I should be praying against those little buggers because they can create a problem when they start eating your vegetable garden. But we have to be, knowing that God has control of certain things, we don't. Solomon, in his wisdom, verse 33, prays against war. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name, pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. Bring them back to the land which you gave to your fathers. It's like he knows they're going to get hauled off to Babylon. But I don't think he knows that. It's just in the spirit he's praying. And he's praying for this future time when they get hauled off. Some transfer this to the church today. I think that's a stretch. Israel's unique, and Solomon's uniquely praying for Israel as a nation right now. And that's an okay line for us to have. But as God helped establish Israel, people argue God also established the church. So this is prophetic, too. So you can read it how you want. The idea that God protects people historically has actually been fairly true. If people side with Israel, things tend to go well for them. If people start to attack or go against Israel historically for 4,000 years, that doesn't work out so well for those people. So Israel's been marked for extinction a number of times. People have decided we're going to eliminate all Hebrews from the planet. Egypt tried that, and what we call Egypt today is not original Egyptians. It got wiped out. The Assyrians tried that. We don't really have Assyrians anymore. The Persians tried to do this. They tried to eradicate all the Jews. We'll get to those stories. That didn't work out well. We don't have Persians anymore. We have Iranians, but not the empire of Persia. Then the Romans decided, we're going to just wipe out all the Jews and Christians. They tried that. The mighty empire of 800 years, Pax Romana, doesn't exist anymore. We have Italians, but it didn't go so well for them in the long run. And the, the attempt to eradicate Jews and Christians was right at the end of the reign of the Romans. And then the last and most recent one here in the 1900s, we had a nice almost 2,000-year season of peace got broken when the Germans decided they were going to eradicate all Jews. Well, that didn't work out so well for them. They lost their government, and we still call it Germany, but it's not the same 
Germans that tried to eradicate the Jews. They got wiped out, not the Jews. That's amazing. You would think they had the power advantage. Try to eliminate Israel, good luck with that. It's not going to work out well for you historically. So there's some background to that, especially with Israel. I don't know if that's the same promise for America. Like that, that's the stretch for me. Like we, we pray that for America, but God didn't make any special covenant with America. He made a covenant with the whole world that if we honor him and we honor Israel, he'll bless us back. But this is one thing with anything diplomatically. If you want to talk to the Arab world today that has their eyes on Israel and they're trying to eradicate Israel from the earth, that's not going to go so well for them. Even if they make alliances and team up and try to attack Israel, it's not going to go well for them. But we'll get to watch the show. The last time they tried in 1968, uh, the Seven Days War, or no, 1948, they attacked right after they were established. That didn't go so well for them. Israel's borders expanded <laughs> at the end of that war, and they were fighting a defensive war. Think of how that works, right? They beat them back so bad they didn't know what hit them. So it looks small. It's a little tiny sliver on a map, but don't go against Israel. It's not going to go well for you. It's actually going to go the opposite direction. Historically, we can say that's always been the case since this promise got made, since this prayer was made. Then you get to verse 35. He starts praying against famine. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you. I love that everything Solomon prays is because Israel sinned against you. If bad things are happening, Solomon associated that with that's the sin and the defiance of God. He's trying to discipline you and bring you back home. So when the heavens are shut up, that means there's no rain because they've sinned against you. When they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. Famine in the Middle East is always a worry. So this idea of rain not happening in the Middle East, that happens. They can have whole seasons where there's no rain. So that idea of rain being associated with God's domain, Steph thinks the weather people know what they're talking about. I maintain at the end of the day, weather people have no clue. All they can do is say, look, there's clouds in the Dakotas, and they look like they're coming this way. But then they say there's a percent chance of rain because they actually don't know how it all works. It's just too complex. So this idea that you're going to get rain or not get rain has everything to do with stuff that's out of our control and out of our hands. So that's why they give percent chances. But when we know we haven't seen rain year after year after year after year, that's one of the things that people start praying to the Lord. And that's in the 1930s, during the great dust bowl of the Midwest, there was also a great revival that went with that. And people started to say, wow, there's been enough of a season without rain. Maybe we should pray about that. So they did. The argument there is because they've sinned against you. So sin being an affront to God, God in his love brings these things that he's in control of to help people come back to his name and return to that. Then you get, after famine, if your ground dries out enough and it's been ill cared for, again, we're seeing this in our backyard right now. If you take enough years and don't care for soil, it turns into pestilence. And you get certain kinds of bugs creeping and crawling because they like that soil better than richly tilled soil, where you get healthy things like worms and you know, butterflies and those kind of bees pollinating things. You let that soil go and it gets caked hard and little cracks in it. You get locusts, you get frogs, you get nasty stuff that creeps up on you. So verse 37, when there's famine in the land, 
pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all of your people Israel, when each one knows the plague in his own heart, spreads out his hands towards this temple. What an interesting connection. You see the shift from an actual literal plague to that phrase, no matter what's going on out there, pray that people understand there's a plague in their own heart. There's something wrong with their heart. And that's what's more important. Yeah, there's grasshoppers out here, but there's like spiritual grasshoppers in your heart. And they're chewing away at the food that you would normally get to get your nutrients off of. Verse 39, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act to give everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, for they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our Father. That idea of things like pestilence, grasshoppers, flies, those things show up and they feed on dead soil and dead stuff. When in our lives, spiritually, we get the same way, we start to get a place where we're not getting fed. We're always at combat with other people, and then our hearts aren't being nurtured. They get a dry, arid era. The third thing in order is that you start to get flies in your heart, right? The arguments lead to dead, dry soil, which leads to pestilence, and there's a sickness in your heart. Notice it's the third one where he talks about the heart. In other words, there's kind of a progression here that happens. And when that happens, like teach your people to stop and repent. Like cultivate that soil of your heart again. Pay attention to the individual framing. He moves from the nation of Israel to individuals. If the whole nation's going away, then help individuals turn their hearts back to the Lord. And that's what's good for the nation. Spreading out their hands towards the temple, the solution is to turn towards God, not away from him. Notice that he, he iterates a, an idea that we see in the New Testament that no person is sinless. Every person has a plague in their heart and only God can get rid of that. So theologically, we don't shift when we go to the new covenant. We still believe that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We still believe that that sin is a sickness that we can't get rid of on our own. We need God to get rid of it. And we pray that God lops that sin out of our life and gets, just totally removes it. Verse 40 says, for them that fear you. It's interesting in the Old Testament, the disposition to God is often to fear God because sinful folks will fear a holy God because we fear what's going to happen when we come into the presence of that God. Jesus' covenant changes this because he, he doesn't just cover sin, he removes sin and tells us to boldly come before God in love. And it changes our relationship to God, but it doesn't change the principle behind it. So our debt that we can't pay gets paid, and then we can come into the presence of God. So instead of praying, please don't kill me, we just say thank you. And it changes our approach to God entirely. We don't have to go before God in fear anymore. As long as we go to God with a humble heart and we seek to serve him. So it changes it. Verse 41, I love this too. Like it's here at the beginning of the temple era. We caught a lot of this with Moses. Some of these concepts like everybody's sinned. We all need to account for sin. It was way back with Moses, but here at the foundation of the temple era, Solomon's just repeating all this, and now we get this invitation to Gentiles and foreigners. By the time we get to Jesus, they wouldn't even talk to the Samaritans. If you're not Jewish, you're crap, right? They were early Scottish people. 
But we get to like the we get to Solomon here, and it's not the case at all. The foundation of Judaism was not exclusive. The very foundational prayer Solomon's praying: Let the whole world come to God. And today, under Christ, it's the same thing: Let the whole world come to God. Yet, how many times do Christians try to exclude people from their clubs? And we, as humans, we just fall back into that tendency of us versus them instead of everybody needs to come under the tent. Verse 41. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake. These are people that serve Yahweh, but they're not Hebrews. For they will hear of your great name and your strong hand, your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls you that all people on earth might know your name and fear you and do as do your people Israel and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. So here's a non-Hebrew worshiping Yahweh and Solomon says, man, when this person shows up, may you treat them the same way you treat us. May they know God the same way we know God. So this is God's house. It's a beacon for the world. It's a city on a hill. It's where everybody can see it. Everybody can come to it. And any glory that Israel gets is going back to the name of God. Any success or accomplishment, God gets all the credit. The purpose here is that they might know. And I think that this is one of those just beautiful ideas that Yahweh from the beginning was acting on behalf of the entire world. It wasn't just that he was treating Israel as that special nation for a thousand years. He treated Israel as a special nation so the whole planet would know who Yahweh was. And Solomon institutes that and kind of sees the golden age of Israel here. If the Israelites are in sin and worshiping other idols, then there's no point in in Israel being special. They might as well get hauled off to Babylon because all they're doing is dishonoring God because they don't do the things that God said so nobody sees anything different when they come to Israel. They see people worshiping 20 different gods. Why would God bless that nation? It doesn't do anything to spread the, the news to the rest of the world. So there's this idea of a corporate nation being a representative function of God's glory on this planet. And if Israel does what they're supposed to do, they're going to be able to be something where the whole world can say, surely they must be a God because those people are making a a fruitful place in the desert. Surely there must be a God because look at how blessed they are and they've got nothing, but they have everything. Surely there must be a God because these people know how to sing and pray and worship and feast like nobody does on the planet. There's no party like a temple party. And that would be the thing that calls people to it that they might know. It was an open invitation, firmly in place by the time we hit Isaiah. Isaiah 56, 7. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. This is what got Jesus so ticked off. If the court of the Gentiles was so the whole world could show up, court of the Gentiles was the biggest court. It's a great place where you could do, you know, if the Gentiles don't matter anymore, we might as well use, if the Gentiles don't show up anymore because the Pharisees are a bunch of hypocrites and nobody really cares what they think, then the court of the Gentiles sits empty. Might as well use it for buying and selling some doves and make a profit for the temple. Like, it's just an empty courtyard. Let's fill it up with marketplaces and money changers. Let's do business in that courtyard. That enraged Jesus. The whole point of that courtyard was so the whole world would have a place to have a party and celebrate just like the Jewish people did. 
That was the point of it. So if that's supposed to be a house of prayer and it's getting used for something else, Matthew 21, 13, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. Stop it. This temple's not for that purpose. This is why Jesus comes and he ends the temple era. It's over. You've blown it. And he creates a new era where the temple is the body of Christ. Tear it down and in three days I'm going to rebuild it. He can use the church to be the new temple or the new place where his name resides. But that puts a lot of responsibility on us as a little fellowship, doesn't it? If we're supposed to represent the love of God when people see us interact with each other, that's a huge responsibility. If we're supposed to welcome people with joy, prayer, worship, Bible study, that's a huge responsibility for us. And we don't want to make the same mistake the Pharisees did and think that it's somehow an exclusive club. We need, a, we need a place where Gentiles can come join us, and they're welcome to do so. Verse 44, when your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them. Remember the first mention of war was when they lose? <laughs> this is a prayer for victory on the other side. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them. Notice Israel doesn't get to pick their battles. It's wherever God sends them. If they're going to go out and fight, it's because God told them to go out and fight. And when they pray to the Lord towards the city which you have chosen in the temple which I have built for your name, then here in heaven their prayer and their supplication maintain their cause. When we go out to do God's work, we pray before we do it. Principle gets established here. We keep doing it as Christians. Verse 46, When they sinned against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Like, he's just predicting the Babylon exile, right? The diaspora after Rome. Like, he's recognizing that in the future history of Israel, they will get hauled off to foreign lands. That's an odd thing to pray when you look untouchable, right? Just knowing that Israel's not going to be there forever. So he repeats the idea from Roman 3.23, literally parenthetically adds, there is nobody who doesn't sin. There's nobody perfect as he's standing at the altar as King Solomon, admitting then that he's one of the non-perfect people. Even the high priest is not perfect. They don't know what they're doing. They're just sinful humans. So this turns out to be entirely prophetic. He doesn't claim to be a prophet, but he's praying in the Holy Spirit and blessing the nation. God's putting words in his mouth that are absolutely going to come to pass. It's kind of stunning how that happens. So Solomon isn't included in the prophets because he never claimed to be a prophet. He's just praying. And God uses that and, and really marks some things that are going to happen. Verse 47. When they come to themselves in the land where they've been carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we've sinned and done wrong and committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you towards their land which you gave to their fathers the city which you've chosen, and the temple which I've built for your name. This happens. They're in Babylon, and they create entire groups of Levites that, okay, we've sinned against God. So what we're going to do is, the, as Levites, we're going to have some people that just are in every town and every place, and we're going to follow God's law here in Babylon. We're going to follow the example of Daniel. So they're in Babylon for a number of years, and this group starts to pop up that today we call the Pharisees. And the Pharisees' job was to make sure everybody kept the law. So when they do come back to the land, the Pharisees grow in power and strength because they never want to lose their land again. 
So it's they, and they kind of rule over people, but instead of just pointing them to the law with mercy and grace, they become legalists. And they start to hold people to the law through obedience and pressure and force. And the Pharisees start to become a very ugly group of people. But the initial heart of the Pharisaical movement was let's not depart from the law of God. We need Levites in every city that make sure that we're following God's law. But the Pharisees added over 600 new rules to God's law and then made sure that people spat in the right place and on the right day. Ridiculous things. So all of that comes out of this idea of Solomon's prayer saying, boy, when you get carried off, like turn back to the Lord. And they do that. They get brought back into the land. And we see this covenant. Frankly, this is one of the most succinct passages that we have in the Old Testament about what salvation prayer sounds like. I'm going to read it one more time. Think of it in terms of a prayer of salvation. Like you're lost, you're in the enemy's territory. Verse 47, when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we've sinned and we've done wrong. We've committed wickedness. First part of a salvation prayer. Admit what you've done. And when they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you towards their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you've chosen and the temple which I've built for your name. They need to pray to your name, but they don't know the name yet. So when Jesus' name is revealed in Matthew chapter 1, we now know the name, which is <laughs> when you're lost in the enemy's territory, admit your sin and pray to the name of Jesus to, for a hope of salvation that comes out of that. This is the, what we call a prayer of salvation. And Solomon establishes this back in 1 Kings chapter 8. A lot of firsts when we get to the building of the temple. John 2 verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. That's Herod's temple, not Solomon's. And you think you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body, which in three days rose again. And then he says, this is my body I've broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he calls his own body the temple of God, built for the name of Jesus, and then everyone who gives allegiance to the kingdom of God is doing so from enemy territory. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that they should not be, so should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. The kingdom Jesus is talking about, the temple he rebuilds, his body, is not of this world. It's of the heavenly realm. It's an amazing shift in covenant, but it isn't different in theology. So when we're lost in the enemy's territory, we ask to be brought back, and the Lord brings us back into a heavenly realm, into a heavenly kingdom. The prayer is really simple. We've sinned and we've done wrong. We've committed wickedness, and then you give your heart. I'm going to give you my heart and my soul. Please save me, Lord. The prayer of salvation. I just love that. Verse 49, moving on. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. When somebody prays this prayer, Lord, answer that prayer. This is God's will. Solomon's just praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 50, forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions. He shifts back to the public or the group prayer now. It's not talking about individuals anymore which they've transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they're your people and your inheritance. And you brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. Remember, this is before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he's praying about iron furnaces. 
that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people, Israel, to listen to them wherever they call to you. Praise God. This is the God of the Old Testament, that he's just going to hear everybody's prayer when they pray. They do it sincerely. He answers it. Solomon is speaking with, with Israel in mind, but because of verse 41, this applies to foreigners just as much as Hebrews. So in the spirit, he's just praying and he's praying everything accurately for all the different covenants God makes. Verse 53, for you separated them among all the people of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Jesus says, I'm going to build a new house. Hebrews chapter 3 talks about the house of Jesus, the family of God and the kingdom of God. We're in the, you know, our inheritance is what God's going to give us. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. We're promised an inheritance by Jesus that's a heavenly inheritance. Solomon's praying about a very earth-based Israel inheritance, but the principle remains the same and we pray for that inheritance. Then you get Solomon's blessing, kind of ends his prayer just blessing the people in front of him. Verse 54, this is a lot of verses tonight. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication of the Lord that he arose from before the altar. Again, he stands up from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread towards heaven. And then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, blessed be the Lord who's given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There, is, there, have, there has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. Amen, right? The God we serve doesn't fail in his promises, and we can know that. We can have faith that any future promises he'll keep just like he kept for Solomon and Israel. May the Lord our God be with us as he is with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That he may be inclined our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded to our fathers May these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord, our God, day and night, that he might maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require. Just this prayer for day-to-day provision from God. Lord, may you just bless your people that every day you fill them with the knowledge and love and presence of God. I can't think of a better way to go through life than to just know every day that God's with me. Um, I'm sorry. Verse 60, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your hearts, heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God and walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. We know that today we kept the Lord's word and command because the glory is right behind Solomon as he's talking. Like the justification of the prayer is visible to everybody listening to it. That idea where he blesses all the assembly and all the earth might know, the the mission is the same as Jesus saying, go out into the ends of the earth to spread the glory of the name of Jesus and make disciples of all men. Like the mission has not changed. The only thing that changes is that humans lose the vision of the initial covenant over time. What's amazing is that the church age has lasted 2,000 years. It's been the best of all the covenants because it's held that long. And Jesus says he will return when his people cry out for him to return. There'll be a remnant still asking for God, and that's when he'll come back is when this too has failed. And then he'll come and reign himself in person. 
That's the, the millennium which lasts a thousand years. This covenant of the church age is interesting, but the covenant of the temple age under Solomon's prayer has the exact same mission, the exact same prayer of salvation, the exact same conditions, and it's open to everybody on, on the whole planet. It hasn't changed. There has not failed one work. Folks, we can't skip over that verse. God has never failed in everything he's done. You're not putting a blind or absent faith in a God that simply never missed. That's actually a really rational place to put your faith. Everything of this world has failed at some point or another. You can ask my wife, I fail every week. In some way, shape, or form, people fall short. In some way, shape, or form, finances fall short. In some way, shape, or form, you can climb the top of your profession, be at the top of your game, and it still doesn't feel like you've done enough. Professions fall short. Everything else falls short, but the peace and the hope and the love of God never fails. It persists through all generations, and it will be with you day and night. May he not leave us or forsake us. This is language from Deuteronomy 31, Joshua 1. This is a promise that has no time limitation. The prayer for Solomon that he's making here applies to us today. May your people, when they call upon my name, that still exists. Hebrews 13.5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Same promise. I just love this. Verse 59, verse 59. It's an interesting thing in verse 59. He says, may these words of mine, which I've made supplication, um, that he might maintain the cause of his servant each day that he requires. He really only requires a day a week. The only thing God's asked for, like for you to dedicate your time, is Sabbath. It's a pretty small percentage that God's asked for himself, but it's an example here where we see Solomon praying that back and saying it's okay to do that. The idea that Solomon's praying for blessing, some pe sometimes the opposite of prosperity gospel is poverty gospel where we never pray for the blessings of this world. Yet we see Solomon praying for those things. I think the difference is this. As believers, we're not greedy for the things of this world. We're not clinging to them. But sometimes to say that we want God's presence all day, every day, is a blessing and a wealth, a spiritual wealth, that we can and should ask for every time we get a chance. God, I just want your presence. I want to be greedy for God's presence. I want to be greedy for great Bible study. Lord, help me find that. I, I, I desire better worship in my life. Lord, help me with my prayer life. I want that to flourish. Those are things that I think it's okay for us to ask for a ton of. And to request those blessings is the first step, I think, to getting them. Maybe God's just waiting for you to align yourself with even making the request. I grew up kind of thinking I didn't want to inconvenience God. Like, I, I don't want to be a trouble to God. I want to be an easy believer. Like, I'm not a lot of work for God. But what a weird thing. God asks us to actually desire that presence. Verse 60, so that all the people of the earth might know. That's a new purpose. That's the first time we've really kind of seen that opened up, actually verbalized in the Old Testament. God's kind of focused on Israel, but Solomon breaks that open to be kind of a bigger focus. The mystery of who God's people are, that got solved in Genesis. The mystery of the throne and the temple place, they get resolved in in First and Second Samuel, the mission of where the city is gets resolved with David picking Jerusalem. So this idea of the next step for the mission has always been progressive for God. 
So the next step for the mission, Solomon lays it out. Now that we've got the temple and a place for his name to be known, we want the whole world to know the name of Yahweh. So the mission gets expanded again. And I think good leaders do that. They provide vision. When you've finished one goal, what's the next thing for us? Where do we head next? And they ask those kinds of questions, and frankly, they pray for those things. They've been working for seven years. It's united Israel. It's made trade networks with other nations. We know Tyre is definitely knows who Yahweh is. And now Solomon's saying, I think the next thing is for the whole world to know who Yahweh is. And he lays out this vision. It's repeated by Jesus. Jesus says to them in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So he, like a good leader, tells us the vision. Here's what I want to see happen. I want to see you go out and tell everybody what the gospel is and the good news. So God's blessing to his people has always been to bless them so that they can go out and tell people about their blessings. We're blessed, so we bless other people. That's called overflow. So how does this happen? The verses we got, that each person is loyal to God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as this day. How does that happen? That each person, that means each one of us, follows God's commandments and we do what he says. And if that happens, the rest of it will follow. Then Solomon dedicates the temple, verse 62. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. They did sacrifices before. Now they're doing sacrifices after, putting the prayer right in the middle. And the middle of the prayer, hear my supplication, if you're thinking of this like a chiasm. Verse 63, and Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. If they can count these sacrifices, they couldn't count the ones at the beginning. How many were they doing at the beginning? Because now they suddenly are able to number. Also notice that at the beginning, they're likely doing burnt offerings, which you just burn up to the Lord. Now they're doing which kind of offering? My favorite. Now that we have peace and fellowship, it's a peace offering. Peace offerings, you burn up part of the animal, and then you take the rest of the animal and you hand it to all the tribes, and it's a big, giant picnic. So they're eating here. You get done with this, now let's celebrate. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Massive gift to God. And in Leviticus 7, we know that a peace offering comes back as barbecue. All the fine cuts of meat. God gets the fat, so they burn up the fat, so they eat nice, healthy, kind of fat-free meat and they have a giant, massive barbecue. Only they don't have pigs, they have beef barbecue, because pigs are not kosher. Verse 64, on the same day, the king consecrated the middle, of, the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. They had to add a few extra barbecues. You know, roll them out. We don't have enough room. God gets the fat back in Levi 3. All of this then is sealed with a meal. The grain offering is just kind of this, they put the cakes on, they put oil on it, and the cake offering essentially creates this food aroma that would waft through the whole town. Massive. Verse 65, at that time, Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with them, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath, to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God. Seven days and seven more days. Perfect, perfect. 14 days. Perfect times perfect. Perfect plus perfect. 66, on the eighth day, he sent the people away. 
And they blessed the king, and they went their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant and for Israel, his people. Um, we'll, of course, end here at the end of the chapter, but this is how, honestly, I read this, and what hit me was, that's how I feel every Monday. You go seven days of the week, every Sunday we get together, we hang out. My favorite part is after we get done and I'm done with my work for the day, I get to listen to you all just blessing one another. And the ministry of the, just you guys just encouraging each other, praying with each other, I can just sit back and listen to that. It's just music. And I don't know if any of you kind of get that sense, but like you just get that feel like this is God's people loving one another. What a blessing. So they're there for seven days. They feast together. And then he sends everybody home. Okay, go back, do your thing, do your lives. They get back to work. They do the grind. They get up on the next day and they're like, all right, I got to go back and take care of sheep. They hear God's word. They pray with Solomon leading the prayer. They worship, they sacrifice, they feast. And then the phrase here, this is what caught my ear. They went to their tents, they went back home, joyful and glad of heart. Just that, ah, this is the peace of God. We've arrived. We're here. If only all of my life could be like that. We finish Sunday and we think that that was a good day. That was a worthy day. This is why some of you are like, we do Bible study every night of the week. And I'm like, yeah, well, you can start prepping some, right? It takes time to prep those. But that idea of, I just love it so much, I can't wait for it. And maybe that's why we do it every seven days. Maybe we get six days to want it. So when we show up, we're like, oh, I just, I love going through God's word. I love praying with the saints. I love the feast, the barbecue, the food, you know? And I, that chili today, delicious. Delicious in the name of God, delicious. All right, I know I'm nuts about food, but I, it can be an act of worship too. For all the good that the Lord has done, let's not lose focus on this. We don't do this for ourselves. We do it to celebrate the name of Jesus Christ. For all the good that God does. God made this system. God said for them to do this. God gave Moses the orders that David set up and accumulated stuff for, and Solomon carried them out. And then they get exactly what God made, which turns out to be a giant feast for all the people of Israel to enjoy. It's not exclusive. Everybody's invited to the feast. Not everybody shows up. Jesus said that heaven is a giant feast, and everybody's invited. But at the time that the feast starts, they're going to close the doors, probably to keep out the cold air. You know, maybe it's winter. And there's going to be people outside the door that don't get to come in, and they're going to knock at that door, and the feast will have already started. And the Lord's going to be like, I invited you to the feast. Why didn't you show up? Some people are going to show up to the feast according to Jesus, and they will take it for granted. They're not dressed for it. They're not ready. They're not set up. And he kicks them out. Why are you here? You totally disregarded me. And now you came and you're making a mockery of my feast? Don't do that. Like those kinds of things. We don't often tell those parables to Sunday school classrooms. Those are the hard ones. But God sets up this image of a feast on earth with Solomon because heaven is a giant feast where God's people gather and they enjoy his presence. Nehemiah 8.10, I'll close on this. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, tend the portions to those of whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Don't sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The strength of God's people is when they gather and they're joyful. That's the power that we have supported by the presence of God through the Shekinah glory, the people of Israel feast, and the goal is to get that out to all the world that this is where God has peace and rest for his people. This is the one place they don't have to worry. 
and stress and be anxious. This is how we fight our battles. We simply give it to God and we do what God says to do, which in part is to have a nice meal and to pray and worship and study his word and all that stuff too. But that idea of just being together, he prays, gives God the glory, notes who God is and says he's separate, prays against battles, prays against famine and dry season, prays against pestilence and sickness of the heart. And then he says, Lord, you can have all those things. We're going to burn them up on the altar. And when those things are gone and burnt up on the altar, we can have rest and peace because we've been forgiven of our sins. That's the goal, and it's been that way since the temple was founded. It was that way back with Abraham, too. It was back that way with Adam and Eve. They just blew it. So that idea of God just wanting his people to have rest in his presence, that's what he's always wanted in his creation. So he keeps making covenants that get closer and closer to that idea. What an amazing thing that we live under the covenant of Jesus, which gets us even closer. And the promise is the next phase is going to be the real thing. We'll actually be in the courts of heaven praising his name forever. If that doesn't sound exciting to you, why do you care? right? But if that does sound exciting to you, God's promise that's what's coming, is that we get Sunday every day of the week, and we get to live that way for eternity. How awesome is that? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your gift. Thank you for Solomon, that he's praying in wisdom, and he's praying in your spirit, Lord, that your presence was there and and largely influencing what he prayed. Thank you, Lord, for the consistency between what your will is for us on earth. Lord, thank you for the beautiful and wonderful things that we have your word and we can just keep being in it and reading the words of a living God. What a gift. Lord, thank you for prayer that we can come right with boldness into your presence and just ask you and make supplication for things. What a gift. Lord, thank you for the ability to worship, to take our hearts and stir them up so that we have just understanding and reverence for your name and your holiness. Help us to do that. Help us to do all of that. And last but not least, Lord, thank you for the desire that you have that your people will feast in your presence without guilt, without shame, Lord, but we can just be partaking in the blessings that you've offered to us. And Lord, help us to just give that back to you with all our hearts and souls, seeking to follow you more than anything this world has to follow. Lord, may our hearts pine for you more than things of this world. And Lord, I just pray for each person in this room individually to understand the parts of their heart that need to be purified. Lord, and to give that to you. Lord, if there's people in this room that haven't committed their life to you, Lord, I pray that's something that stirs in their heart, that they can come into full recognition of their own sin, but give it up to you and follow you with their whole heart, mind, and soul. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.